A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I am your host, Cheryl Ann Amendola, and I am so glad that you're here. Uh, If you're a first-time listener, welcome, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. We have a very exciting guest this evening. Well, it's evening when I'm recording this. Uh, Cynthia Gayton. She is a documentary film director, and the first documentary film she directed was Hidden in Plain Sight, Revealing the Concealed Harper's Ferry Cemeteries. She's originally from Seattle and learned a lot about history from her grandparents, and she wants to tell us a bit about her documentary and why local history is so very important. Cynthia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. I've been following you and really enjoy what you talk about and your approach. It's really been refreshing. Thanks so much. And I enjoy reading about your documentary and I cannot wait until I have some access and can see it. The documentary right now is uh, circulating film festivals, which is really, really cool. Um, And I will make sure that I post in the show notes as soon as it becomes available for you all to see as well. But Cynthia, can you tell us a little bit about the documentary before we get into some more other deeper stuff? Sure. Uh, I've been in the Washington, D.C. area for several years. I came here as an undergraduate student and uh, became enthralled with Harper's Ferry, uh, mostly because of the ice cream. I would come every summer and uh, there was a place that I always went. And there were uh, art fairs and little events that occurred in, in Harper's Ferry that I would attend. So it's always been on my mind pretty much ever since I've been in the in the area. Uh, so this documentary is an expression of my deeper understanding of the town. I had been coming to Harbor for so long, uh, I didn't realize that there were two cemeteries that were not on the beaten path, although I had a map that indicated one of them. Uh, but the if you go into the area where the map shows that the cemetery is, it is not evidenced by any signs. There's nothing that says there's a cemetery there. Next to that cemetery is an African-American cemetery. It was called the Colored Cemetery, and that doesn't appear on the maps even in, in the in the past, um, although it it is a thriving and still being used cemetery. So what I wanted to talk about in the cemetery is the relationship between these uh, two cemeteries, why they were fundamentally ignored for for so long. And I try to give an idea about what could have led to the abandonment of uh, the older cemetery, whether it was, I I actually did not come up with with an answer. I hope that when people watch the documentary, they can come to their own conclusions, but I give some suggestions and it goes along with understanding the history of West Virginia and Virginia, as well as the founding of the country. Uh, so it goes, I start from the founding of the country and bring it up to the present day. And I have two interviewees uh, that are local. And that was one thing I really wanted to do because there are professional historians who've been working in the area, you know, and studying Harpers Ferry for 
years, but for whatever reason, this didn't pique their interest. And a lot of it might be because there's, you know, there are no famous people in there and it doesn't, uh, with regard to the narrative of Harper's Ferry, it doesn't, they don't have to deal with John Brown, <laughs> those kinds of things that Harper's Ferry is known for. So I really wanted people who were interested in the, in the local history, as well as people who live there to uh, talk about uh, what they know about these cemeteries. So that's, that's the background. So you said that the one is still active. The other one that was not on the map that you, that you managed to uncover were, were the graves were there gravestones? Were they clean? Was it kept? Like do people, does anybody in the community take care of the other one? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> well, the, the, there was one, the town of Harper's Ferry had requested from the, uh, Department of War or the War Department to set aside some land for a cemetery for the town. And because the, the federal government owned the land. And so it was set aside in, in 1852. My reasoning was because uh, there was a dire need because of the cholera epidemic that was spreading through the area. And so they, they needed a place to put, put, these, put these bodies. Uh, so that that was the map that uh, the the cemetery with the map. Uh, but if you went there today, there's no sign that shows that that cemetery is there, even though it was in operation at least until the early 1900s. I understand from talking to local people that it was actually used uh, the property or the land was used for grazing um, for for a long time because uh, there's a there are lots of areas known for people having their own um, farm animals in their yards in, in the past up until the, in, until the 1960s. The other cemetery, the African-American cemetery uh, does have headstones. Um, it was known, it just wasn't on the maps that I had. So the old maps that I had identified uh, this cemetery called Pine Grove uh, but if you went there today, you wouldn't see a sign. The other cemetery, there was no sign on the maps. There was no indication on the maps, even though there were actually headstones there. So it's kind of a reverse uh, situation. The African-American cemetery was managed by a local church for uh, many years, for decades. And that probably was why it was kept up. So as long as the church was there, there was somebody taking care of the cemetery. There was no church affiliated with the other, with the other cemetery. It was a, as a town cemetery. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so what you studied for your documentary is really specific and it's really local. So like I'm living in New Jersey, I'm teaching students in New Jersey and I'm not clamoring to teach about Harper's Ferry <laughs> if I'm teaching about John Brown. Um, yeah. And, but also in my curriculum, there's not a lot of local history either. So for example, around the, basically around the corner from my school, there is a house that does not look like it belongs with any of the others. It is teeny tiny. It is very old. And we found out this year that it was actually owned by a formerly enslaved person who um, was enslaved by one of the founders of Montclair's um, 
family members. So sure. the kids thought it was really interesting, but it kind of just ended there where, oh, there's this really neat house in town. Um, so why do you feel local history is so important for students and the public? Why would a teacher like me want to then dive into that instead of just being like, cool trivia? <laughs> because it impacts so many things as a result of learning about this cemetery. I started out, my research was about a particular family. Uh, the Thomas Lovett family that built a hotel there in Harpers Ferry in 1888. And when I first visited Harpers Ferry, I did not realize that it was an African-American who had built a hotel, even though that's where I was spending all my money was, was up there at that hotel. I was staying there. I would go to the art fairs there. And that led me to learn more about that family. Um, and, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. That's why I, I call this a rabbit hole history productions, because you start with one thing and you end up in a completely different place. Um, I had found that allegedly uh, the builder of Hilltop House was buried at the cemetery, uh, the African-American cemetery, and there was no headstone. So that led me into studying, well, why does why doesn't he have a headstone? He has this huge hotel, it's a world famous hotel, and why is there no headstone in the cemetery for him? And that led on the inquiry about, you know, was he buried there or, or wasn't he? So that led to this uh, mystery about where he was buried. And I found out that he was cremated. And so that led me to a whole introduction into Brooklyn and that it was a, a haven for African-Americans uh, generally and had been historically for a very long time. And that's where he lived once, once he left um, Harper's Ferry. And that led me to um, learning about Red Summer because uh, during the 1919, there was a, there were a series of events which also leads to the Tulsa um, disaster that African-American businesses were under attack by some communities. And I started linking the fire that his hotel experienced with this nationwide epidemic of African-American owned businesses being under attack. So if you can learn one thing, maybe even about a rock in your town <laughs> <laughs> and, and it, it can expand your mind in ways that you, you don't, you don't expect. Um, and that's why I think local history is important because of course you can look at a cool house just like I did for years. I looked at hotel, not thinking anything deeper than it's a cool place to go to art fairs, you know, but um, what piqued my interest was why didn't I know that African-American built the hotel? Why wasn't that part of the, part of the narrative? Um, and so that led me because I, the first time I went there, I actually went there for a wedding for my, uh, the, my boss uh, remarried and she had her reception there at that hotel. And uh, so it was like, well, why did she pick this? It was, there's so many, you know, so many questions. So uh, an inquisitive minds, I think will generally, and certainly children, uh, their curiosity can take them in so many directions. And it's certainly easier to start from home, you know, where you are than trying to figure out what's going on someplace else. And that's one thing that I emphasize with my students, and I know my colleagues emphasize with their students, is this idea of questions. Ask questions, and you never know where those are going to lead. And 
if anybody has to comfort a student who's in the middle of a research project, I mean, Cynthia, your story is a really good one because you thought you were starting in one place, but you just ended up in another because you kept learning more and more and more and more and more. And right. that local history also can can connect to identity. What is my community like? Who am I? What what part do I play in this community? Why am I interested in this? Um, so there are a lot of ways that that this connects to our social studies classes, to our history classes, and ways that we can use local history to really help our students understand their place in the world, which I think is really, really beneficial. Um, so what suggestions do you have for teachers or for students or even for the casual listener to begin investigating local history? Where do you start? Your, your local library. Um, there's a very small library in Harpers Ferry, the Bolivar Harpers Ferry Public Library. I, um, one of my first jobs was at a local community library across the street from my grade school. And I've always found libraries, a wealth of information, not just for their books, but the people who, who uh, the librarians there and the people who go there and the activities that are there. So I'd start with a local library, not necessarily university one, because they don't have time. <laughs> to these kinds of questions, but uh, local libraries have the time and the interest and have been nothing but helpful to me, my, I have to say my whole life. Um, so I would start there. Uh, they have the weird, you know, behind the desk flyer that somebody dropped off, you know, 20 years ago, explaining the the, the uh, famous gardens of the neighborhood. I mean, these kinds of <laughs> things that only they would know. Uh, and, and so it's, so I would start there, start there. And, and I've, I've never had a situation except, you know, with universities with, where the librarian doesn't have time uh, to answer, you know, questions about uh, the neighborhood. Librarians and in fact, I have to say, um, when I was doing this research, I went to the local library and I said, there's a cemetery. Do you guys know anything about it? They're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, okay, this is the map because it was from 1862 this is the map. This is the cemetery. And they didn't know what I was talking about, but they knew somebody who knew about it. They called uh, some, a friend and said, there's a patron here who has a question about this cemetery. They didn't tell me who it was <laughs> that they were talking to. <laughs> and so I, through three other connections, I was able to, talk to somebody who might have known something about the cemetery, but that person only knew about it from the, basically the, the map, didn't know anything else about it, but they ended up connecting me to the first person I interviewed for the documentary. And because she happened to be doing research on the same cemetery, because she was looking for um, uh, people who had died during the civil war in Harpers Ferry. So, that kind of coincidence, I'd been researching on this, on similar subjects for years. And I happened to go to the library. I happened to talk to a, the librarian who happened to know somebody who knew somebody who could connect me with somebody else. And it led to this, this interview. She also, they also introduced me. They said, oh, well, the pastor of the African-American cemetery, who's the caretaker. Yeah, he's sitting there at the computer. I can introduce you. It's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, the the community, there's maybe 1,200 people in the, their sister cities, Bolivar and Harpers Ferry. Um, so 
I would definitely, if I, if starting it all over again, I will still go there to, if I have any questions about there because they know they have those, those resources and those personal relationships uh, that really helpful. And that's a life skill for, for our students as well, because there's, there's an, an art in talking to people and having conversations in persisting in, in your digging. So, um, I, I, I mean, I, I always recommend to my students interview people whenever you can. They are fine. They're great primary sources. If you're using them as a primary source, some of them have wonderful expertise, or they might lead you to something that you can then use or, or help you reformulate your thesis or help you figure something out that you didn't know before. So like get away from your screen. If you can make a couple of phone calls, talk to people in person. Uh, and I also know that some towns, and if this is something that I didn't expect from my town, because it's so small, some towns have their own little museums. Some towns have their own little historical societies. So those are really great places that you can dig as well, because they, uh, they might have some of the things that the, that the library doesn't have. Right. And that's definitely true in Harper's Fair. There are historical societies. Um, I ended up traveling. It's not that far. It's only about 20, 20 miles, but going to Winchester and this whole journey has brought me to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. It's brought me down to Strasburg, Virginia, um, just to, because not everything's online. Yeah. Believe it or not. I know people don't think so, but a uh, lot of things are not online, especially local history. If if Sam, somebody's grandmother wrote down their family story, it may not have been scanned because it costs money, especially in small communities. It's expensive uh, to scan all the things that people would want to research. But it has um, never been, it has so far has just not been a waste of time for me to, uh, I went up to Chambersburg, I, you know, trying to find out about uh, this family that went up to Chambersburg after leaving Winchester. And I didn't think she'd have anything to say to me or uh, have any information. And she led me in a whole different uh, direction um, and dealing similarly with my research. And I didn't think she'd necessarily have anything. So just going there, just talking to her on the phone, uh, I was afraid she didn't, she wasn't familiar with what I was talking about when I got there though. Um, just having the conversation. She's like, oh, well, you might be interested in this. Well, then you might, well, maybe this might be of interest to you because it was the conversation. It wasn't just a phone call. Um, and, you know, I've gone up three times to Chambersburg. I had no other reason to go up there, but it's where, uh, you know, John Brown, you know, uh, met Frederick Douglass there. And that's why, that's why I went, but I also went there because of the research I'm doing on the family. So, so, how does the research that you did, and you can answer this more generally if you don't want to answer it specifically about Harper's Ferry, but how does looking into local history or looking into Harper's Ferry, Harper's Ferry's history help you or can it help a student or a person understand the community in the present day? Maps. <laughs> um, maps are the, the, the importance of map for the maps for this documentary and the overlay of seeing first the older maps will have family names. And if your family has been there for a long time, uh, your family name, or if they own property, your family name might, might be on this map. Even if your family is not on that map and you're overlaying all these decades of information, then you know where you are in, in the world. For, for example, um, there are a lot of Na Native American trails in Virginia and this part of the 
part, well, all throughout the United States, of course. But seeing the Native American trails and seeing the, the roads and then seeing the streets that have all built upon these trails that had been established thousand, a thousand years ago um, puts you in the past and the present simultaneously. You can stand on a road that somebody was walking on more than a thousand years ago. That's pretty, to me, that's just mind blowing to think, think about that. Um, that here we are, you know, so many uh, centuries later, and we can still stand in a place uh, that other people in the past had, had stood. Um, so that, to me, is um, how to put yourself in the past and the present simultaneously. It's kind of like time travel. <laughs> yeah, and then standing in those places and thinking about those place names can then lead to those questions that you were talking about earlier. So. This was a trail named after a Native American tribe. How did it end up a paved road? What are what what happened between that period of time where this where a, a certain group was dominant and now another time where the US federal government is dominant? That's another question that can be asked there and there's more research to do just from simply standing in a place that you found on a map. Right. I mean, and then you see politically, then you start saying why did certain uh, roads change names. You know, you start seeing the progression of names over time. The road wasn't always named Lee Highway. You know, you when you're born at the time when it's called Lee Highway, then you think it's always named that. But you start realizing things change, even in the United States, even within your lifetime. Um, and things are not necessarily permanent in the same way, you know. So, Yes, you can stand on that road, but that road might have had, you know, a hundred names by the time it got to you. Um, but it makes it very, you start seeing the elasticity of time in that, in that sense, that we can have an impact on, on some change in our, in our community and our environment. So that's something definitely that I've experienced more this year than, than ever before is, is some things that I thought were static and, unable to change um turns out they change all the time you know you just have to be comfortable with the fact that it's going to change things are going to change in your lifetime <laughs> yeah. and it is just mind-blowing that we can stand in these places and using your words just be in this time machine and the closer it is to home for a student the more effective it will it will be in helping them understand history and understand the past because they're actually standing in it. They're living in it. Um, and that's just, for me, it's a very cool feeling when I get to feel it. And I'm sure it was an incredibly cool feeling for you, given the depth of your work. Um, so just imagine how a kid will feel when all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, and certainly as a, as a child, when I was, when I was growing up, um, you know, we, we certainly roamed a lot more freely than a lot of kids probably do now, but the, a lot of the uh, feeling of discovery of being outside is, is very different uh, than, you know, while I like to do research online, it's very different when you're, when you're someplace in, in real life. Um, and it gives you a sense of, sense of your own self of your of your importance in in the world or lack of importance in the world but this continuum of time so i don't i i think kids 
because I, I was a child and I know that there's a lot more that uh, uh, not necessarily parents will give you credit for <laughs> that you that you can have all these um, these experiences and just in thinking about preparing for this conversation um, so much of my life was outdoors and I made my own maps my brother and I actually I had two two younger brothers and we would draw maps and we'd have treasure maps and I'd have make made up maps and made up towns and you know treasure islands and all these kinds of things that so maps obviously have impacted me but I was able to bring, pull my brothers in whether they wanted to be or not uh, into into these adventures and we wrote little stories about these these places that we were going to go and uh, some of it was based on reality in the neighborhood and others were completely in the imagination. Um, and I don't know if my parents actually ever saw these little stories, but, but we did them. I, I still have them. <laughs> That's awesome. And I also love the idea of, of history as an adventure and creating an adventure in your own backyard. Um, oh, yeah. I want to shift gears just a little bit because I know you also wanted to speak to um uh, the idea of talking to either a grandparent or an older person in the community, if if there if a person doesn't have a grandparent available, um, how do you suggest teachers help students get conversations with older community members started? Uh, well, one of the things you always want to talk about something that they're interested in will be very helpful. <laughs> so if you know that they like to sing or they like to dance, then it's a lot easier to get them to talk about, um, well, where did you learn how to dance or where did you learn to play this instrument? Because then you're help not only learning yourself, but it's a memory lane for them. They're able to tell you these. I was looking at a um, conversation I had with my grandmother um, not to far from when she when she died and so it was two conversations and I asked her how she exactly this I said who taught you how to play the piano and then she there's just a stream of information that I did not have enough you know I didn't have the speed to to with which to write it down um but she told me the story about her her grandmother where she played the piano how she played the organ, which churches she played in, which relatives played the instruments and which ones didn't. Um, but it was because it was something that I knew she was interested in because she played organ at church. And I knew that she played the piano well and it was a, a family activity. Uh, so I would recommend if you're gonna to talk to an older person, talk to them about something that you know they already like, whether it's flowers, uh, then you'll get the same thing, rabbit hole. You'll end up with so much information that you did not expect. I, I recorded my grandmother and I haven't been able to find the tapes for that. It was a long time ago. Um, and, but I remember I transcribed them. So I need to find the writing for that. But uh, this is my mom's mom. And she had wild stories that she grew up in, in New Orleans. And it was so fascinating to me how the, the whole life that, that she had. Um, and it was very mysterious and very different from uh, growing up in Seattle. And she was a lot more, seemed a lot more interesting than my mom. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> 
and it doesn't get much more local than being in your backyard. So whether, whether a student is interviewing just any, any older community member, they can find out so much based on just that one question that you, that you said to pose about something that they're interested in. And then, like you said, write down the rabbit hole because you can find out so much more about your community or the community in which that person grew up. You can use those skills if you are doing, uh, if you're doing a research paper. So you're not necessarily talking to someone who's, who's related to you or who's close to you, but maybe someone else who's older in another community that can be a, a wealth of information. Um, so I, I think, I think that that's an amazing skill to teach kids to get those oral histories from, from people who are still here and get, like you said, get away from their computer. Um, so before, before we close for, for tonight, do you have any, any parting thoughts or parting wisdom that you would like to share with either teachers that would help them help guide them in their classrooms or with students or both? Well, one of the things just as I've gotten older, because I was not as outgoing and in, in talking to people when I was growing up, uh, was a, you know, I read all the time. I had, it was more of a bookworm than any anything else. And then working at the library helped me get out of out of my shell and be willing to talk to people. But it really wasn't until doing this research, I had a um, art gallery that really forced me to uh, engage with people. So I couldn't uh, avoid it anymore. But once I broke through that fear of being afraid of talking to strangers, you start coming up, certainly in retail, you start finding little things to ask people about that will break the ice. If you notice a handbag or if you notice a book or if a t-shirt has a band name on it that you recognize, uh, making those kinds of, of connections with people, it gets a lot easier with, with practice. So um, I think taking some of the fear of engaging with people um, is, is a skill that I wish I had known or exercise at least um, when I, when I was younger um, that I think, you know, younger, younger people could really benefit from because I, I think I would have because um, it eliminates a lot of fear and anxiety because when you feel that you can ask a question and you're nothing bad's going to happen to you as a result, um, it's, it's very empowering. I, I, that's why I'm a little concerned um, in schools now, because in, in my classes, um, I'm afraid the students won't ask questions because they're being recorded. And so I'm there when it's in person, especially since I teach uh, about legal issues, I'm afraid that students won't ask legal questions if they're being recorded because they don't want this to come back to them. And so I'm, I'm worried about that level of anxiety, but when you can get to a point in these in-person conversations, um, really give you an opportunity to, to develop the, these, these skills, these questioning skills without necessarily worrying about whether it's gonna come to haunt you when you're, when you're uh, running for office. <laughs> um. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. This was a oh, lovely you. conversation. And I think that there is a lot for our teacher and student listeners to pull from, to use in their classrooms and in their research. If someone who's listening would like to get in touch with you, what would the best way to do that be? Um, it has to be Twitter right now. I would not have said that a couple of years ago, <laughs> but um, but that seems to be the best way because I'm I am on it. Uh, a lot more frequently and certainly doing this documentary has 
um, really broadened the my interest in reaching out to people that I hadn't you know really done before in social media in that way. Social media to me has always been something I didn't want to engage with because it seemed very scary. But having a documentary <laughs> um, has actually, uh, you know, it's it, it confines my focus in a way. And um, I can pick and choose a little more flexibly. So uh, so it's at, at whole history. So Twitter's, Twitter's the best way to get in touch with me. Great. So that's at Whole History. And if you would like to visit the documentary website, you can go to rabbitholehistory.com. Thank you so very much, listeners, for tuning in for this week's episode. And thank you again to Cynthia for sharing her time and talent with us. Hopefully we will see you next week. If you'd like to get in touch with me before that, you can visit me at www.teachinghistoryherway.com. You can find me on Twitter at History Herway or on Instagram at Teaching History Herway, or you can look me up on Facebook at Teaching History Herway as well. I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.